Chapters 9 to 11 of Book 2 of Toilers of the Sea, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part 2. Malicious Gilliatt by Victor Hugo. Translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book 2. The Labour. Chapter 9. A Slip Between Cup and Lip. All was not ended. To reopen the gorge thus closed by the portion of the Durand's bulwarks, and at once to push out with the sloop beyond the rocks, nothing could appear more clear and simple. On the ocean every minute is urgent. There was little wind, scarcely a wrinkle on the open sea. The afternoon was beautiful and promised a fine night. The sea, indeed, was calm but the ebb had begun. The moment was favourable for starting. There would be the ebb tide for leaving the Douvre, and the flood would carry him into Guernsey. It would be possible to be at Saint-Samson's at daybreak. But an unexpected obstacle presented itself. There was a flaw in his arrangements which had baffled all his foresight. The machinery was freed, but the chimney was not. The tide, by raising the sloop to the wreck suspended in the air, had diminished the dangers of the descent, and abridged the labour. But this diminution of the interval had left the top of the funnel entangled in the kind of gaping frame formed by the open hull of the Durande. The funnel was held fast there, as between four walls. The services rendered by the sea had been accompanied by that unfortunate drawback. It seemed as if the waves, constrained to obey, had avenged themselves by a malicious trick. It is true that what the flood-tide had done, the ebb would undo. The funnel, which was rather more than three fathoms in height, was buried more than eight feet in the wreck. The water-level would fall about twelve feet. Thus the funnel descending with the falling tide would have four feet of room to spare, and would clear itself easily. But how much time would elapse before that release would be completed? Six hours. In six hours it would be near midnight. What means would there be of attempting to start at such an hour? What channel could he find among all those breakers, so full of dangers even by day? How was he to risk his vessel in the depth of black night, in that inextricable labyrinth, that ambuscade of shoals? There was not help for it. He must wait for the morrow. These six hours lost entailed a loss of twelve hours at least. He could not even advance the labour by opening the mouth of the gorge. His breakwater was necessary against the next tide. He was compelled to rest. Folding his arms was almost the only thing which he had not yet done since his arrival on the rocks. This forced inaction irritated, almost vexed him with himself, as if it had been his fault. He thought, what would Déruchette say of me if she saw me thus doing nothing? And yet this interval for regaining his strength was not unnecessary. The sloop was now at his command. He determined to pass the night in it. He mounted once more to fetch his sheepskin upon the great Douvre descended again, supped off a few limpets and chataines de mer, drank, being very thirsty, a few draughts of water from his can, which was nearly empty, 
enveloped himself in the skin, the wool of which felt comforting, laid down like a watchdog beside the engine, drew his red cap over his eyes, and slept. His sleep was profound. It was such sleep as men enjoy, who have completed a great labour. Chapter 10. Sea Warnings in the middle of the night he awoke suddenly and with a jerk like the recoil of a spring. He opened his eyes. The douvre, rising high above his head, were lighted up as by the white glow of burning embers. Over all the dark escarpment of the rock there was a light like the reflection of a fire. Where could this fire come from? It was from the water. The aspect of the sea was extraordinary. The water seemed afire, as far as the eye could reach. Among the reefs and beyond them the sea ran with flame. The flame was not red. It had nothing in common with the grand living fires of volcanic craters or of great furnaces. There was no sparkling, no glare, no purple edges, no noise. Long trails of a pale tint simulated upon the water the folds of a winding sheet. A trembling globe spread over the waves. It was the spectre of a great fire rather than the fire itself. It was, in some degree, like the glow of unearthly flames lighting the inside of a sepulchre, a burning darkness. The night itself, dim, vast, and wide-diffused, was the fuel of that cold flame. It was a strange illumination issuing out of blindness. The shadows even formed part of that phantom fire. The sailors of the channel are familiar with those indescribable phosphorescences, full of warning for the navigator. They are nowhere more surprising than in the great V near Isigny. By this light, surrounding objects lose their reality. A spectral glimmer renders them, as it were, transparent. Rocks become no more than outlines. Cables of anchors look like iron bars heated to a white heat. The nets of the fishermen beneath the water seem webs of fire. The half of the oar above the waves is dark as ebony, the rest in the sea like silver. The drops from the blades uplifted from the water fall in starry showers upon the sea. Every boat leaves a furrow behind it, like a comet's tail. The sailors, wet and luminous, seem like men in flames. If you plunge a hand into the water, you withdraw it clothed in flame. The flame is dead and is not felt. Your arm becomes a firebrand. You see the forms of things in the sea roll beneath the waves as in liquid fire. The foam twinkles. The fish are tongues of fire or fragments of the forked lightning moving in the depths. The reflection of this brightness had passed over the closed eyelets of Gilliatt in the sloop. It was this that had awakened him. His awakening was opportune. The ebb tide had run out, and the waters were beginning to rise again. The funnel, which had become disengaged during his sleep, was about to enter again into the yawning hollow above it. It was rising slowly. 
a rise of another foot would have entangled it in the wreck again a rise of one foot is equivalent to half an hour's tide if he intended therefore to take advantage of that temporary deliverance once more within his reach he had just half an hour before him he leaped to his feet urgent as the situation was he stood for a few moments meditative contemplating the phosphorescence of the waves gilliatt knew the sea in all its phases notwithstanding all her tricks and often as he had suffered from her terrors he had long been her companion that mysterious entity which we call the ocean had nothing in its secret thoughts which he could not divine observation meditation and solitude had given him a quick perception of coming changes of wind or cloud or wave gilliatt hastened to the top ropes and paid out some cable then being no longer held fast by the anchors he seized the boat-hook of the sloop and pushed her towards the entrance to the gorge some fathoms from the durande and quite near to the breakwater here as the guernsey sailors say it had du wrong in less than ten minutes the sloop was withdrawn from beneath the carcass of the wreck there was no further danger of the funnel being caught in a trap the tide might rise now and yet gilliatt's manner was not that of one about to take his departure he stood considering the light upon the sea once more but his thoughts were not of starting he was thinking of how to fix the sloop again and how to fix it more firmly than ever though near to the exit from the defile up to this time he had only used the two anchors of the sloop and had not yet employed the little anchor of the durande which he had found as will be remembered among the breakers this anchor had been deposited by him in readiness for any emergency in a corner of the sloop with a quantity of horses and blocks of top ropes and his cable all furnished beforehand with large knots which prevented its dragging he now let go this third anchor taking care to fasten the cable to a rope one end of which was slung through the anchor ring while the other was attached to the windlass of the sloop in this manner he made a kind of triangular triple anchorage much stronger than the moorings with two anchors all this indicated keen anxiety and a redoubling of precautions a sailor would have seen in this operation something similar to an anchorage in bad weather when there is fear of a current which might carry the vessel under the wind the phosphorescence which he had been observing and upon which his eye was now fixed once more was threatening but serviceable at the same time but for it he would have been held fast locked in sleep and deceived by the night the strange appearance upon the sea had awakened him and made things about him visible the light which it shed among the rocks was indeed ominous but disquieting as it appeared to be to gilliatt it had served to show him the dangers of his position and had rendered possible his operations in extricating the sloop henceforth whenever he should be able to set sail the vessel with its freight of machinery would be free and yet the idea of departing was further than ever from his mind the sloop being fixed in its new position he went in quest of the strongest chain which he had in his store cavern and attaching it to the nails driven into the two douvres he fortified from within with this chain the rampart of planks and beams already protected from without by the cross-chain 
Far from opening the entrance to the defile, he made the barrier more complete. The phosphorescence lighted him still, but it was diminishing. The day, however, was beginning to break. Suddenly he paused to listen. Chapter 11. A Word to the Wise is Enough a feeble, indistinct sound seemed to reach his ear from somewhere in the far distance. At certain hours the great deeps give forth a murmuring noise. He listened a second time. The distant noise recommenced. Gilliatt shook his head like one who recognizes at last something familiar to him. A few minutes later he was at the other extremity of the valley between the rocks, at the entrance facing the east, which had remained open until then, and by heavy blows of his hammer was driving large nails into the sides of the gullet near the man-rock, as he had done at the gullet of the Douvre. The crevices of these rocks were prepared and well furnished with timber, almost all of which was heart of oak. The rock on this side being much broken up, there were abundant cracks, and he was able to fix even more nails there than in the base of the two douvres. Suddenly, and as if some great breath had passed over it, the luminous appearance on the waters vanished. The twilight becoming paler every moment assumed its functions. The nails being driven, Gilliatt dragged beams and cords, and then chains to the spot, and without taking his eyes off his work, or permitting his mind to be diverted for a moment, he began to construct across the gorge of the man, with beams fixed horizontally, and made fast by cables, one of those open barriers which science has now adopted under the name of breakwaters. Those who have witnessed, for example, at La Roquenne in Guernsey, or at Bourgdeaux in France, the effect produced by a few posts fixed in the rock will understand the power of these simple preparations. This sort of breakwater is a combination of what is called in France epi, with what is known in England as a dam. The breakwater is the chevaux de frise of fortifications against tempests. Man can only struggle against the sea by taking advantage of this principle of dividing its forces. Meanwhile the sun had risen, and was shining brightly. The sky was clear, the sea calm. Gilliatt pressed on his work. He too was calm, but there was anxiety in his haste. He passed with long strides from rock to rock, and returned dragging wildly sometimes a rider, sometimes a binding-strake. The utility of all this preparation of timbers now became manifest. It was evident that he was about to confront a danger which he had foreseen. A strong iron bar served him as a lever for moving the beams. The work was executed so fast that it was rather a rapid growth than a construction. He who has never seen a military pontoon at his work can scarcely form an idea of this rapidity. The eastern gullet was still narrower than the western. There were but five or six feet of interval between the rocks. The smallness of this opening was an assistance. The space to be fortified and closed up being very little, the apparatus would be stronger, and might be more simple. Horizontal beams, therefore, sufficed, the upright ones being useless. The first cross-pieces of the breakwater being fixed, Gilliatt mounted upon them and listened once more. 
the murmurs had become significant. He continued his construction. He supported it with the two cat-heads of the Durande, bound to the frame of beams by cords, passed through the three pulley-sheaves. He made the whole fast by chains. The construction was little more than a colossal hurdle, having beams for rods and chains in the place of wattles. It seemed woven together quite as much as built. He multiplied the fastenings and added nails where they were necessary. Having obtained a great quantity of bar iron from the wreck, he had been able to make a large number of these heavy nails. While still at work, he broke some biscuit with his teeth. He was thirsty, but he could not drink, having no more fresh water. He had emptied the can at his meal of the evening before. He added afterwards four or five more pieces of timber, then climbed again upon the barrier and listened. The noises from the horizon had ceased. All was still. The sea was smooth and quiet, deserving all those complimentary phrases which worthy citizens bestow upon it when satisfied with a trip. A mirror, a pond, like oil, and so forth. The deep blue of the sky responded to the deep green tint of the ocean. The sapphire and the emerald hues vied with each other. Each was perfect. Not a cloud on high, not a line of foam below. In the midst of all this splendour the April sun rose magnificently. It was impossible to imagine a lovelier day. On the verge of the horizon a flight of birds of passage formed a long dark line against the sky. They were flying fast, as if alarmed. Gilliatt set to work again to raise the breakwater. He raised it as high as he could, as high indeed as the curving of the rocks would permit. Towards noon the sun appeared to him to give more than its usual warmth. Noon is the critical time of the day. Standing upon the powerful frame which he had built up, he paused again to survey the wide expanse. The sea was more than tranquil. It was a dull, dead calm. No sail was visible. The sky was everywhere clear, but from blue it had become white. The whiteness was singular. To the west, and upon the horizon, was a little spot of a sickly hue. The spot remained in the same place, but by degrees grew larger. Near the breakers the waves shuddered, but very gently. Gilliatt had done well to build his breakwater. A tempest was approaching. The elements had determined to give battle. End of chapter 11 of book 2. Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com.